I actually think that I think there's there's such a stigma or such a social or sort of a cultural expectation for men, like you said at the start, for us to always be strong, to be the provider, to carry the big load, to do all of that stuff, to be the rock for our family. That expectation can be crippling because it means that we don't feel like we have permission to feel. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. You are listening to Don't Be Afraid to Talk podcast with James. If you are listening for the first time, you are welcome. Talking and listening is key for growth, and I hope our stories will bring us together and we can draw inspiration from each other. Conversation will include topics such as mental and physical health, trauma and its effect, suicidal thoughts, recovery, and well-being. We will continue to raise awareness and offer a different perspective a mindset or an idea that could inspire you to take charge of your well-being and to grow as a human being. Thank you for joining us today. Today I'm joined by Israel, who is a coach, speaker and a writer. And today we're going to be discussing depression and men's health. If you're listening, have an open mind and we hope you can learn something from this episode. Israel, how are you? I'm really well, James. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, uh, I live on the East coast of Australia. I'm a dad. I've got two beautiful kids. One of them is 15, one of them is 11. I've been married. I think it'll be 18 years this coming October. Um, very happily together with my wife and yeah and I I basically have gone through quite an adventure in my own career and my own mental health and well-being and it's yeah brought me to this place where I now work as a coach primarily for men on well-being and Mm. emotional resilience and you know I'm really excited to chat with you about mental health and about suicide awareness and that kind of stuff i've been touched by that personally in my life as well which we can get into and um i just have this really firm belief that the more men are able to talk about their emotions and about difficult topics and really become more aware of and able to work with mental illness or mental ill health um the better Mm. we'll be as a society you know Mm. yeah it's uh it's definitely one that we're trying to crack. This conversation will help, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully. Keep having it. Uh, yes, before we start, we're just going to play a quick game called One for One. Uh-huh. I'll give you a word. <laughs> I'll give you a word and you say the first word that comes to your mind. Oh, wow. This sounds great. Okay, go on. And uh, five. <laughs> so it's five random words. <laughs> okay, terrific. Yeah. So the first one is mountains. Fresh air. Purpose. Alignment. Pink. Elephants. (laughs) Pink elephants. (laughs) Imagination. (laughs) And father. Love. And the last one is future. Growth. Thank you. 
Thank you. I just that was great fun. That. What an awesome <laughs> idea. I've never had that happen in an interview before. That's terrific. Pink elephant. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the famous elephant. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I don't yeah. know where that came from, but there you go. That's uh, full disclosure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, sorry, we get going. I just have a couple of questions here. We're going to be covering uh, quite a lot. So my, my first question is, um, how was childhood growing up? How was your home? It's really interesting you ask this. I've just been reading a book by Dr. Nicole Lepera called How to Do the Work. She also runs the Instagram account, The Holistic Psychologist. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because in a part of her book, she actually suggests we really look very honestly at our childhood. So my instant reaction would have been, yeah, I had a great childhood, um, <laughs> you know, like, but the, the rose-colored glasses of, of hindsight. But when I really look at it, my parents separated just before I turned seven. Um, I had a fairly rocky experience through that because uh, my mum left my dad and took us with her. And so there was a period of time where I felt very disconnected from my father um, I also was a really academically gifted kind of kid. And so that in Australia, there's this beautiful thing called the tall poppy syndrome, which is basically where anyone who stands above the crowd because they are gifted or talented or what have you gets cut back down mm. to the same level as everybody else. So I experienced a decent amount of bullying and, and, you know, being targeted because I was great in school because I found it very natural for me. Um, so I would say that my childhood was on the whole good, but there were definitely some challenges. And when you say cut back down, so in school, if you're slightly better, we, we use that word, slightly better than other kids, they drop you down. That's not a good thing, is it? Yeah, they would. I would get bullied. I would get teased. No, it's not a good thing at all. I mean... <laughs> It's, it's a bit of a cultural thing in Australia that a lot of people I've spoken to from um, from the US and Canada really don't understand it. But <laughs> or maybe not so much Canada. Canada, it tends to happen as well. But in the US, they have an approach of lifting everybody else up, saying, oh, you're doing well, great, keep going, you know. But in Australia, um, oh, my goodness, the rain has just decided to crank yeah. up here. So for those of you in the background, <laughs> if you can hear a dull roar, that's what it is. Um, in Australia... I don't know if it's a, a throwback to our colonial past uh, or, or the fact that we kind of, you know, white Australians, I guess, came from the background of convicts primarily, that there's this cultural piece where somebody that stands out or becomes really successful, um, it becomes quite threatening to a lot of people. And so they target that person for bullying and for teasing and, and that mm. kind of stuff to try and get them to come back down. So it's taken me a really long time to kind of process that. And it's something I still need to work on this tendency to sort of to shrink a little bit, to mm. sort of pull myself back. Mm. So yeah, that would still affect your, your adulthood. If you're kind of felt you couldn't be yourself, you, you had to shrink back down to everyone else's level <laughs> to fit in. Absolutely. And, and I mean, within that too, like, I don't want this to sound like I've got some enormous ego that I'm just so bloody marvelous so great, and yeah. nobody else is, right? Yeah. Like, right, like I've, I've always taken the approach of being humble, but also being, um, oh, what's the word? Appreciating and acknowledging the truth, which is that I do have these gifts and I can... Mm. I, I do find certain things a lot easier than other people. So anyway. 
Yeah. But yeah, that, that tall poppy thing was definitely a big factor in my childhood and schooling. So, And is that when you suffered with anxiety for a long period of time, is that where your anxiety came from, your teenage years? And When I think back on it, I actually think that it's sort of been a bit, a bit of anxiety and a bit of depression have kind of played a role through my life. I mm. think depression really spiked when I was at university. That was when I was on my own and when I was able to, mm. I, suppose, I suppose I had the luxury living on my own or living in a, in a like in a flatmate situation <laughs> yeah. of, of being able to just stay in my room mm. and ruminate all day and like, you know, spiral like the, I had that. I don't feel like going to class today and now I'm an independent adult. I can just not go to class and I'll just stay home, you know, and, and feel sorry yeah. for myself or spiral into thoughts of all the things I should have done better. When I reflect on it, I don't know. I think it probably had its roots there for sure. I think it had its roots there and, and it's the piece of, mm. um, like you mentioned, never feeling like I was able to fully be me definitely played a role, definitely mm. played a role, mm. you know? And then as I started to stretch out when I'd graduated from, from university or from college and then started to work in my first career, which was as an IT consultant in the, you know, computers, information technology industry, when I was doing that sort of work, I was given a lot of responsibility and I was in charge of some pretty big projects at a very young age because I demonstrated that I was capable. But then... A lot of anxiety kicked up there and I had my first full-blown sort of panic attack in my early 20s where I was just like, oh my God, what am I doing? How am I going to manage all of these things? You know, like I was <laughs> in a, a, a relationship for the first time that was quite serious and I was also doing this huge project with my work and at the same time, I used to play drums in a rock and roll band and I was I was putting together our launch of our first recording and, you know, all of the pressure, all those things and and. I guess the weight of expectation that I'd placed on myself just caused yeah. me to wipe out with this massive panic attack that sort of first led me into counselling. So, and at that time, at that age as well, uh, did you know? Oh, what I had it no was? idea. I had no idea. Like I'm 44 now, so I'm talking like over 20 <laughs> years ago. So back then, the dialogue yeah. around mental illness was nothing like what it is today. There was no awareness. There was no conversation about it. It was mm. full of shame. It was full of um, uh, like secrecy. It was taboo, you mm. know, that conversation like I'm experiencing anxiety. I reflect back now, my best friend who was the best man at my wedding, I can remember a conversation I had with him when we were both at, at university together where he'd said to me, oh, I've, I've, been, I've been really having some, some mental health problems and I just didn't know how to have that conversation back then and I just brushed it off because that was what I'd learned, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was very, very unusual. Mm. Yeah, it was, yeah, back then it was kind of, yeah, let's just put that over there. And then- right. Like yeah. close the door to it. We won't talk about it. <laughs> what, yeah. What What do you mean? There's something wrong with you? Just Just suck it up, sunshine. You know, you'll be right. Just carry yeah. on. You know, like <laughs> which yeah. which we know now is not helpful. It's quite a quite a trigger for a lot of trauma for a lot of people. So yeah, especially for men as well. Um, mm. It's even worse because you're meant to be this person that has it all together somehow. Anyway. <laughs> That's right. 
it was looked at as a weakness. So, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And you mentioned that you you had postnatal depression. Yeah, that was was that when you had your first child or the second child? It's actually my second child. So I sort of I had those those panic attacks hit me in my early twenties, and then. Mm. I changed careers. My wife and I decided I decided to become a full-time photographer. So I took portrait photos and wedding photos and things like that for, for a number of years. And we had our first child. Everything went really, really well. She was born very early, but very healthy and robust. And we had a great time with her when she was young. And then we went mm-hmm. through some challenges with work and then gradually reached a point where we were getting in shape and we were running the business really successfully and we felt my wife fell pregnant with our second and around the time that she was in the latter stages of pregnancy everything in my life had like escalated to a massive level like I was training up four new photographers to shoot for me and I'd published two books worth of my photography within a couple of months of each other and you know, I was running a team in the office and my wife had stepped out of our business, which we'd previously been working in together so she could prepare for our son's arrival. And then once he arrived, obviously sleep goes out the window because brand new baby, you're up at yeah. all hours of the day and night, right? So yeah. <laughs> so all of these factors and I would, I'd trained for and just run a full 42 kilometer marathon. So I was just pushing in every area of my life, stretching out everywhere and just not having any time for rest and and for myself. And when he was born and my wife had left, like stepped out of the business for a period, I felt like I was starting to come unstuck. Like I wasn't quite keeping up with the workload and with the task list. Mm. And then after a period of time, we went away for our regular kind of Christmas, New Year vacation and I came back from that and I just couldn't get started. I felt like I'd stopped and then once I'd stopped, the wheels fell off and I couldn't get started again. And so I ended up um, shortly after that, my son was about four or five months old, being diagnosed with postnatal depression or postpartum depression. So um, I didn't know, actually it's not entirely accurate, I was diagnosed with depression. It was only later I realized and was in conversation with some people from a, um, a charity association in Australia who mm. who said, look, if, if depression or anxiety symptoms are diagnosed within 12 months of a new child, that's effectively postpartum or postnatal depression. And and I kind of went cross-eyed and I'm like, what do you mean? Like I didn't carry the baby. <laughs> yeah. I'm a man. Like what's going on? You know. And, <laughs> yeah. and then they explained like, you know, one in 10 dads get diagnosed with this every single year. One in 10 new fathers experience this. And like to your point earlier about men not speaking out about this, the expectation or the belief is that that figure is highly underreported. So, you know, so it's probably a lot higher than one in 10, but that's what we have as official medical stats. So. Yeah. And how was that for you? Because I've, had to I watched some videos on it and there was men talking about some of them were having like hallucination about the child, some of them were having like dark thoughts about the child and some fathers just didn't really want the child and they didn't know why. They just felt mm. like they just felt like the child was a burden and they didn't know why like they were, like they were looking for the closeness for the child. They were looking to be close to the child but they just couldn't and they didn't right. understand 
why that was happening. And is that something you would experience yourself or? My experience with it was, I imagine what I would consider a more straightforward kind of depression kind of experience in the sense that I just felt like I wasn't coping and I just felt like I couldn't keep up. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do all of the things, you know, like running my own business, being a decent husband, being a decent father to my then four and a half year old, nearly five year old daughter who'd just started school and then being a decent dad and being engaged in my son's life. I just felt like everything was too much. I felt like mm. I was on a really hair trigger, like I had just such a short fuse and my anger would blow up and I would explode at the family over the littlest things. I felt like there was this constant pressure. I don't think it was my son particularly. Like I don't remember there being a specific like, oh, that bloody child, you know, like I, I remember it more. <laughs> yeah. I remember it more like just, yeah. just everything. Like I loved him to pieces. I was so excited and so ready for his arrival, but I just wasn't able to mm. keep everything under control i couldn't i couldn't man manage myself and i just had a lot of really difficult kind of emotions and and just a feeling of like hopelessness yeah. and despair like it was a mountain i was never going to climb and i was just stuck kind of grappling with the rock all the time and everything else was just triggering you yeah the everything you know, the smallest thing like my daughter would like say something at the dinner table and I'd lose my crap, you know, I'd go off at her and, and just be this yelling, angry beast of a human. And, and when I look back, I mean, let me tell you, I've done a lot of work to sort of process all of that and to make peace with that was part of yeah. my experience. And I've apologized profusely to my family repeatedly, you know, but, but I look back at it and I just didn't have any other way of operating back then. I didn't know how else to operate. Mm. And obviously, that would have caused a lot of problem with you and your wife. Oh, massive, massive. Because also on top of this, I had this feeling like she's the mum of a brand new baby. She was breastfeeding and she was up at all hours of the day and night to tend to his needs. And I really needed for her to feel like it was okay for her just to step out and look after him. And so I actually was trying to shoulder this enormous burden of all of our business responsibilities, all of our money situation, all of the workload that I had, I was trying to carry all of that and insulate her from that so that she didn't feel like mm. it was a big issue. But of course, as I began to withdraw to try and keep her isolated from all of the struggles I was facing, she felt me withdrawing and she was like, what's going on here? We were arguing more. Mm. We were not communicating well at all. And it was just a really difficult season in our marriage where we look back and, and she said to me, well, after the fact, she said, I didn't know what was going on with you, except I just knew that you weren't talking to me. You just stopped communicating. And my wife and I have always, and to this day still have a really, really rich and deep and open communication style, which I think is one of the reasons why we're still so happily married. But at the time, mm. I just felt like I couldn't talk to her about it because I was embarrassed that I wasn't coping because I wasn't okay. living up to my beliefs or expectations about I'm the man, I should be able to manage all of this, what's wrong with me? You know, all of that sort of stuff started so that, to show up. Go on. So that, that brought a lot of shame. Huge, huge amounts of shame. And when did you decide... When was that broken point where you're like, okay, I need to get this under control now? <laughs> mm, yeah, it was 
it was actually a conversation my wife and I had with where she said to me, she actually called me on it and she said, you're not right. I don't know what's going on with you, but you're not yourself. And you can't talk to me about it, but you need to talk to someone about it. And she just gave me this feeling that like, if I didn't talk to someone about this and if I didn't take action on this, it was going to spell disaster. Yes. And so she said to me, she made a suggestion. She said, look, you and your stepdad have always had a pretty good relationship. Because, I mean, coupled with all of this, my dad, my you know biological father was who I have a, a, had a, an amazing relationship with, but he'd always carried an awful lot of judgment around people who didn't cope or people who had mental illness. So you know there was a okay. lot of there was a, a lot of a, a feeling that if I was to try and talk to him about it, you know, even going back, like when I wanted to leave my really lucrative IT career and become a photographer, we had massive conflicts about it because he couldn't understand that. I was doing something for my own happiness instead of for the (laughs) money. If it was all about the money, I'd still be in IT, but it was just miserable. I did not like the career or the environment or the industry and I had to get out. So, so we, we disconnected a lot during that period of me transitioning into photography and, and I felt this sense that I just couldn't talk to him about it, but my stepdad, I was able to talk to really well. And so from that, my wife said, maybe chat to your stepdad, chat to Pete, see how you go. And so I went, all right. I need to do this. My wife's given me this little not so subtle yeah. hint, you know. So I rang him and and it was actually in that conversation, it was a Friday morning and if I looked in my notes, I could still tell you what date it was in 2011. And I just said, I'm not coping. He said, "How you know, was it like, how are you going? How's the weather? What are you up to? How can I help? You know, was sort of the conversation. And he just said, you know, what, what's going on? And I just said to him, I'm not coping. I'm not coping. Mm. Everything in my life sucks. Like I'm being a terrible dad. I'm being a terrible husband. I hate my business. I'm not feeling happy at all. I just want to throw everything away and go curl up in a ball and hide. And in that moment was the first real moment that I'd admitted something was wrong, that I'd publicly shared this is not okay and I'm not okay. Now I'm really grateful because he didn't judge me. He just said, look, here's the thing. In life, when you have a problem, you have one of two choices. You can either discover what the source of the problem is and resolve it and fix it and move on or get some help. If you can't mm. figure out the problem on your own, you need to get someone who can support you to figure out and to you know resolve it and move on. And so I went, wow, that's so simple. It's like a fork in the road moment, you know, I can <laughs> yeah. go down... And, and I really immediately, it's I realized simple, is it? <laughs> it is, it is. I, I immediately realized like I've been banging my head against this for months and I'm not figuring it out myself. I've got to get some help here. I need to talk to some experts. The very next day, my wife had looked on some websites in Australia. There's an organization here about depression, anxiety awareness called Beyond Blue. And they have a really helpful survey, like a questionnaire you can do on the website to help you gauge your own mental health state i suppose Mm. and from that i ended up doing one of those surveys and i went you are in a really high risk category for being (laughs) depressed or experiencing depression i went oh okay that was like the biggest relief ever i'm like wow i'm not some sort of freak of nature this is just a medical condition that has a diagnosis and and ways of treating it and all that so that was like an enormous relief Mm. and you also mentioned that you lost your father um who who took his life so how was uh yeah 
How was that feeling for you? Yeah. Oh, it was, it was bloody awful. You know, like I'd kind of, I'd gone through all of the, all of the depression stuff and felt like I'd made a really great recovery from that. My wife and I had made some significant lifestyle changes. We'd gone on a road trip around Australia. My dad in this period of time had retired and he and his wife, my stepmom had, had also done a bit of a trip around Australia and we'd kind of met up at a few points on the adventure, which was beautiful. And I felt like my relationship with my dad had reached this whole new level. Mm. And then we settled in a really small surfing village called Crescent Head, which is, you know, there's about 12 or 1500 people who live here permanently. It's a tiny little town on the coast. But thanks to the internet, you know, we can work and live wherever we want mm. because both my wife and I run work, uh, our work online. Um, and so I felt like it was, things were kind of kicking up, you know, and, and we were on a really good path. My dad had been diagnosed with cancer and he'd been undergoing about 12 months of chemotherapy and treatment, which was brutal and took such a toll on his body and on his mental state. Mm. And it was quite funny. Like I, I understand now having learned a lot more about suicide and about the sorts of behaviors that tend to occur in the lead up to someone who has planned it out is that they tend to do a lot of tying up loose ends. They tend to do a lot of cleansing or kind of resolving things. And, okay. and, and I'd had this conversation with my dad where he'd actually admitted to me. And, and so to be clear in Australia, I've done a lot of work in the media as a spokesperson for male postnatal depression. I've mm. done national television interviews and national radio interviews and all this kind of stuff for a lot of years. My father had always said to me, why are you airing your dirty laundry in public? Like he just couldn't understand okay. that the power of someone sharing their experience can be really helpful to someone who's in the dark, who's in the pit of despair and depression and what have you. And so he could never grasp why I did those things. And then we had this conversation in the week before he died where he said to me, yeah, I think I've, I've kind of re resolved that I've been a functioning alcoholic for about 45 years and I nearly fell over. Like I can remember I was at hockey training with my son. He was, you know, he was on the pitch training and I was just on the phone to my dad having a good old conversation. And he said this to me and it was like a bombshell went off. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, since when did you become so self-aware to admit that you'd had this long-standing <laughs> yeah. alcohol addiction? Like, it was no surprise. Everybody in the family knew already that he was a chronic alcoholic, but for him to admit that, I was like, wow. And then in the same conversation, he admitted that he's been having some mental health issues as a result of his cancer treatment. I okay. honestly had to sit down. I'm like, I, I'm not ready for this conversation, dad. Like, when did you shift so much that you could talk openly about this? And so I felt like we'd really connected at a whole new level mm. where I was able to, because of my experience with depression, with anxiety, the treatment that I'd gone through, I felt like I was in a really unique position to be able to support him mm. and to help him understand what's available to treat him. And so two days after that, we had a conversation where he was going to see his GP and he was going to get some support and get on a, like a mental health care plan and see a psychologist and all this good stuff. And then the next morning I got a phone call from my brother that that found his body, you know, and, and it was devastating. Like there's no other word for it. It was really devastating. It just, it took me a minute because the brother who rang me, he's a policeman, but he's also an absolute prankster and a real smart ass, if you'll pardon the French. 
and it took me a second to go, oh, wait, you're not joking. Mm-hmm. Like my wife and I took the call and we were on speakerphone and and we both just looked at each other like, he's oh, pulling our leg, right? You know, and then the reality sunk in and then it was just, it was shock and I felt numb and I jumped straight in the car and drove the four hours to be with my family and, you know, and mm. and then we just started going through that process of kind of understanding what had happened and trying yeah. to make sense of it and all of that, right? And do you think leading up to that, his the way he changed his mindset, I was kind of a way of him not making peace, but kind of understanding that you have to speak, you have to be able to. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't think, I think he'd recognize that the way I look at it, and obviously I can't, I can't verify this with him, but the way I look at it, he he was, I think he was just (laughs) going for honesty I think he just realized that he needed to cut the bullshit. He just needed to be honest with me about where he was at. And I think in his own way, that was him kind of making peace with all of the years that we'd had disagreements about what I'd gone through and just kind of resolving everything in our relationship to a place that he felt he could leave without any left unsaid, without anything left unsaid, you know? And the last conversation we had together was was great. You know, we were talking mm. about his childhood and his upbringing and some of the traumas. And I'd gone through a quiz online with him where it was really clear to me that he was experiencing PTSD, you know, from some of the assessment questions I went through with him and his answers. I'm like, man, like, you know, and that's, I think, a consequence of the cancer yeah. treatment he'd been through and the trauma that that had brought to his life. But also the shifts that that had caused physically for him, he had gone from a really active, strong, robust man to someone who was frail and withering and had no longer, was no longer able to use his body the way he wanted to. Okay. He had been left with like nerve damage in his fingers and toes and, you know, his hands and feet that, that his feet, felt like they were burning with cold most of the time. No matter how many pairs of socks he put on, he could never get that abated. He couldn't go fishing anymore because he didn't have any sensation left in his fingers to feel the fishing line when he was waiting for a bite. So these things that he had previously really enjoyed, he was just watching all of these pleasures in his life disappear. And and that trauma, you know, like uh, so that – but that conversation, I felt really optimistic because I felt like, oh, wow, I'm able to help my dad. I'm able to help support him. You know, it was a really beautiful feeling for me. And that was, I think, part of the gift of that conversation. And yeah. 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 And obviously after that happened, your depression probably came back worse. Do you know, it's, of- it's really interesting you say that because it actually didn't. It didn't. I had, okay. I had, um, by that point, I'd put a lot of really good regular practices in place. Like I was meditating every day. I had a really strong gratitude practice where I was taking time each day to really focus on all of the abundance, all of the beauty, all of the joy, all of the good stuff. And I also got given some spectacular advice by a dear friend of mine who has worked in mental health and and sort of social work and caring and caseworking and things for a very long time. And she said, here's the thing about grief. She said, you need to let yourself feel it 
every single time it shows up. Mm. You need to let it mm. be felt. You need to let it flow through you. If you're in the supermarket and something reminds you of your dad and you burst into tears, don't try and hide it. Don't try and stuff it down. Stand there, cry your eyes out, sob, wail, whatever you need to do. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Let yourself feel what you need to feel. She said, because if you don't, mm. if you push it away, it's going to come back and kick your butt 10 times worse later on. It's going to turn into something even worse on yeah. the inside if it's undealt with and unprocessed. And so from the very first, I was really, I was deep in a meditation and a gratitude practice anyway, which had me feeling like I was quite a resilient place. I hadn't had any major depressive or anxious episodes mm. for probably 12 or 18 months. I'd been seeing a counsellor regularly and I'd been um, just, yeah, just kind of really in a really positive, strong place. And very mm. quickly I was able to feel the grief and it still comes back, so it's never done, but I was able to feel the really no, sharp sting of it, but I was also able to look for the blessings. I was able to look for what I could be grateful for and how I could feel great about the time I had spent with my dad, the lessons I'd learned from him. And yeah, so, mm. you know, I've, I've gone through some both anxious and depressive episodes since then. But I've also learned a lot about grief and I've learned a lot about what I need to be my best and to operate well and to be robust and resilient, you know. And and I feel like that was mm. another gift for me to have gone through that experience. It gave me a first-hand insight into that part of the world but also gave me a a new appreciation for some of the ways that we can deal with and process those things to move forward after that happens. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I know we, you mentioned grief there. It's one of those emotions, like you said, we, we have to feel it. And if you don't, it, it it stays in your body. Over time, it turns into other things. You know, we just have to get to feel it. Your own journey for yourself, your recovery, how did that look like? Did you? I'm guessing you tried a lot of things. Yeah, I I was really fortunate. When I first was diagnosed with mental illness, I was able to see a great psychologist. And my approach personally, I've never been the kind of guy to, you know, take tablets like aspirin or paracetamol for headaches. I've always been more interested in, okay, what's my body telling me? Do I need to drink more water or maybe give the coffee, coffee a rest for a while? You know, like <laughs> what, what can I do <laughs> to address what's underlying this, you know? So my wife and I have always taken that very non-intervention sort of approach and getting to the underlying causes or the root causes of what's going on. And so when I was first diagnosed with depression, I said to my psychologist, I don't want to just start taking pills. I want to figure out okay. why I got here and then address that because otherwise my experience mm. would, would have been I'm just covering something up. I'm not actually addressing what's truly underlying this. And I need to say, I always say this whenever I'm having this conversation, I have nothing but love and support for people that need to medicate their own mental illness. I don't judge. I think that whatever you need to get you through is totally valid. And I was just fortunate mm -hmm. that at that time I was able to function 
without medication. I know there are people that simply cannot operate in the world unless they have their medication and that's totally cool. So with that, with that disclaimer, my own personal experience was I wanted to get to the underlying causes and I was in a place where I was bad, but I wasn't on the edge. I wasn't completely disabled by this. And so, you know, that piece kind of led me down the path of understanding how nutrition plays a role in my mental well-being, mm. understanding how exercise plays a role. And, you know, as I said, when I first was diagnosed, I was training like an idiot, like a madman for full distance marathons and I was building up to like triathlons. I was training probably four or five days a week, not resting properly. I wasn't getting enough sleep. Like there's all these factors that I've probably not eating the right stuff. No, absolutely not. I had no idea. I was eating like all of the sugar and all the processed stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, why is my energy so uneven? What's going on? You know, so, and, and my wife, it's really interesting. My wife actually took this, she realized after a period of time, and there was definitely a very big period of disconnect when I first got diagnosed. And when my psychologist first said, you need to pull back on the stress whatever's going on in your work, you need to dial that back a lot because it's over the top stress levels for you. My wife was really reluctant as my business partner and life partner. She said, no, we've just spent seven years building this. We're not going to throw it away. You know, you're <laughs> yeah, kidding, aren't you? About? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? And I was like, oh, I'm yeah. dying over here. Like I'm really hurting and I just need to change. <laughs> yeah. What you-? So there was a big disconnect. There was a big period where we just didn't understand each other, didn't see eye to eye. But then one of my um, one of my team members actually pulled my wife aside one day and said, "Listen, this is serious." This team member had gone through she was, she was um, female, a mum. She'd gone through postnatal depression with her daughter and had attempted to take her own life twice. And she said to my wife, "Listen, you need to treat this seriously because here's what's on the other side. If you don't do anything, this is what's at risk." And my wife went, oh, wow, mm. I didn't realize it could get to that level. And so once she realized that, she said, okay, we're going to treat this like you've broken a leg or like you've got cancer. We're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at getting you well. And she, my wife, um, my wife started really digging into food and the connections between what we eat and our mood and mm. found some really clear things that we were doing not very well in our family's eating habits <laughs> Um, I personally don't get along very well with gluten. So I was having, oh God, probably like half a loaf of bread every day and all of the sugar and all of the stuff. And, and she's like, all these things, we've got to change, you know? So, so that factor mm. as well as letting my body rest and recuperate, you know, having the right amount of exercise, not training like a maniac, but actually just having enough movement in my day, getting a good sleep routine. I've since just come to take sleep as like my special source. Like I know very clearly what I need from my sleep. I have a really strict routine around it because it's one of the biggest impacts on my overall mental well-being and resilience. So, you know, there's a range of things and I could talk to you for another six hours about all the stuff I've learned, but, <laughs> yeah. but I feel like I've reached this point now where I've got a good routine i've got the right things in place at the right levels and intensities to keep me kind of pretty balanced and pretty level for the most part mm. yeah and uh, so you work with men in terms of men's health and men emotions and helping yeah 
manage their emotion and things like that. What do you think we struggle with the most? Oh, this is a pretty easy one for me. I feel like the biggest struggle that men have on the whole is even admitting that they have emotions. Yeah, it's like emotions. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, like what's that? I don't have that. I don't feel anything. You're kidding, yeah, I actually think that I think there's there's such a stigma or such a social or sort of a cultural expectation for men, like you said at the start, for us to always be strong, to be the provider, to carry the big load, to do all of that stuff, to be the rock for our family that expectation can be crippling mm. because it means that we don't feel like we have permission to feel. Mm. And that's really like really dangerous. You know, we, we do have emotions. It's an, in, it's an essential part of the human <laughs> yeah. experience. It's, it's, it's like as normal as breathing it is to feel our, mo- our emotions or to feel emotions, to have them. And so I find that the biggest piece is that starting point of like, well, can I feel things? Am I allowed? Is that okay? And, and you know, once you go, yes, it is okay. And interestingly too, um, really quick story. So I've started a, a, a men's meetup in my area where we go for a walk and we talk about this sort oh, of stuff yes. and talk about what's going yes, on. I, was, I, I saw that, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I've, I've preempted your question. Um but one of the things that came out of our, our last conversation, there's a man who joined us who is trans mm. and so previously was female and has been taking hormones and transitioning to male, identifies as male. And and he was telling me that when he first started his hormone treatments, he noticed a massive shift in his willingness to be open about his emotions and he noticed a massive change. And this is what's hilarious or really fascinating to me about the biological factors. He noticed having come from a very female um, biological makeup mm. to then more masculine, more male, he was sharing how everything defaulted to anger. Oh. He was he was only only able to process things into into anger. And he said it was a really weird thing to come to terms with at how um, how much that shifted for him as he transitioned mm. to masculine kind of makeup, and 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 I was like, wow, really? And 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 so it makes sense to me with that kind of idea or that concept that that we're biologically wired to be less in touch and less open to our emotions, and more likely to go into combat, to go into fight. Mm. You know, when we think about that fight flight mode. So, so I think for men admitting that we have emotions and then gently softening into this idea that we can feel them in a safe way and we can begin to process our emotions in a safe and healthy way. Yeah. It's like a muscle, right? Like you can train any muscle to get stronger and more agile and more more flexible. And I feel like it's like a, a muscle in our thinking, in our behavior that we need to train. We need to go, right, I'm a man. That doesn't mean I don't have emotions. <laughs> yeah. I'm a man. That means... I'm probably more likely to default into anger or more likely to to suppress things, but I don't have to. I can build the tools to allow myself to feel and to allow myself to be open and, you know, gradually, gently ease into the experience of perhaps opening and being a little more vulnerable with the people that are close to me in a safe environment to express what we're feeling and to begin to build that literacy or that vocabulary about my emotions. It's, it's 
critically important, I believe. Yeah, I think I think for men, anger is the kind of not the go-to emotion, but it would be up there with one of the default emotion. Mm. Mm. And I think And it's very easy. And it's also what we see all of the time. Every action film is about a man expressing his anger in some way or violence yeah. in some way. <laughs> Blowing up. You look in the yeah. news, right? Like it's, yeah, it's it's <laughs> men fighting other men. It's it's, But I mean, statistically, men, I read a statistic the other day that men are the perpetrators in something like 75% or more of all violent crime. Yeah, that would make sense. Which is... I'll probably say more. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and it may well be in certain situations, right? And so when you think about that, you go, wow. <sighs> Clearly, we have an anger issue as a, as a, as a gender, mm. you know? And, and we don't have the tools or the skills to manage those emotions or to deal with disappointment or, or frustration or grief or sadness or, or like any of the things that we would normally well, I suppose any of the things that maybe our female counterparts would be able to articulate and talk about with their girlfriends, mm. we don't even admit in ourselves. No. And there's not a very strong culture of then having a conversation with our mates. You go out with your, your male friends and it's about, oh, you know, did you see the game or how drunk did you get <laughs> last weekend? Or, you know, I'm really stressed out. My kids are driving me mad. But very rarely do we go, I'm actually feeling really sad i i'm i'm experiencing a lot of overwhelm or i've i've got a lot of grief to process about the future that i thought my kids were going to have and now the pandemic has changed everything they might not have that like these these deeper level conversations where we have that that interactive mm. ability to talk about our emotions with other men it's it's really underserved yeah. there's not enough everything is just external <laughs> nothing too deep <laughs> everything yeah. is external yeah. And with working with men, is that what you help them tap into those emotions? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And and to start with it can be pretty scary work, right? For a lot of men, they're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to touch my emotions. <laughs> yeah. It's really, you know, yeah. so so What's I initially <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Like, oh. I start I start with men working on calming down their nervous system a lot of the men i work with are in that very heightened fight or flight mode a lot of the time like they're always assessing threats they're always feeling stressed or overwhelmed they're always feeling anxious or their brains won't stop or what have you and so we work initially on let's just try and down regulate that that activation in our body and just help our brains operate at a slightly smoother level so that we feel a bit more peace and a bit more calm mm. and look after all of the physical side of it like nutrition and sleep and those sorts of things that I've learned have been massively helpful to help me keep a better handle on my own mental state because I believe that it's only when we are in a more healthy resilient state in ourselves mm. particularly at a physical level then we can take on the slightly scary work of tapping into what's under the surface. And that's when I can start to work with men on, okay, now you're feeling a bit more robust. You maybe have a daily meditation practice or you, you've changed up how you sleep and you're eating well and you're feeling like you're coping a little better. Now let's start to dig a bit deeper. What's going on? You know, What are you finding is the kind of predominant feeling? 
And then how can we start to, I mean, a, a huge piece of the work too is, is creating that gap between something happening and then our reaction. You know, the, um, Victor Frankl, the, the, the man who was uh, a prisoner of war in sort of Holocaust, uh, Germany in a concentration camp, wrote this book called man's search for meaning. And he has this quote, which I, I butcher very badly most times when I try and say it, but basic, <laughs> basically, basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's really powerful. But basically he says, um, between stimulus and response, there is a gap and in that gap, or there's a space in that space is our power and our ability to change ourselves and change the world, right? So mm. rather than operating out of reactivity all the time, Which we when, do, we can, yeah. where, when we can begin to sort of create that little bit of a space where something happens to us, like we get cut off in traffic and then two seconds later we're screaming and yelling and poking, like doing rude gestures out the window yeah, and yeah. all of that. Instead of that, we have that pause where we can go, huh, that just happened. How do I choose to respond? And that little moment of peace is what I work with my men to to start to create in our relationships mm. with ourselves, with our family, with our children, with our work colleagues, and just cultivate that slightly calmer, slightly more peaceful, more resilient kind of mindset. Yeah. Because from there, once we have that in place, then we can change the world. Then we can show up as our best self we can be the guy we always envisaged we would be. We can kind of, in a way, become the hero of our own story. Yeah, definitely. Just without tapping in, tapping into these kind of feelings, it's very difficult to kind of be yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, and working with men. Sorry, are you focusing on changing the small habits first and then getting into the emotion? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. Okay, so yeah. I mean, it depends yeah. on what's most pressing, right? But but most of the men that come to me to work with me, they've got a lot of success, you know, they've got thriving businesses or they're in really successful careers in, in a, a company. Um, they usually have one or two kids, maybe more, and they're struggling, you know, they're feeling like they can't work it out. They've They feel like yeah. they've got a lot of stress their brains keep ticking over there's a lot of overwhelm and so the first thing i do is work on those little habits yes, and yeah it's interesting to underlying this i work on this with men that it's actually okay to prioritize their own well-being and mm. not put themselves last all the time you know it's okay to choose to take those small actions like one of my dear friends who I've started working with who lives in, in Central America or, or, yeah, Central America at the moment, um, he said to me, I just, I, I don't know, like everything is about everybody else. I don't know how to take care of myself. Yes. And so oh, we yeah. started, with, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Oof, that resonates. Yeah. yeah and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in that place, there's that, that really cliche saying of you need to put your own oxygen mask on first if you've ever been on a flight, right? That's part of the safety demonstration. You can't help everybody else if you haven't got any oxygen first. And the thing that is really difficult for a lot of men to realize is that 
choosing ourselves, choosing to really nourish and look after and care for ourselves feels very foreign because we don't know how to do it. We don't do it very often. But it's also like it's just essential because that's where our best self comes from when we have what we need, you know, and it can just start with very small steps. So this friend of mine in Central America, he has started once a day going for a one kilometer walk. He's on a big mm. property in the jungle. And so his driveway from his house to the street <laughs> is about is about 500 meters. So he just takes a walk once a day to his street and back, like down the driveway and back. And that for him is a demonstration of I'm choosing me. I'm doing something that yeah. makes me feel good. And it's like a muscle. Again, it's like, you know, one of my favorite sayings with my with my clients is three sets, 12 reps. If you've ever gone to the gym and done weightlifting, <laughs> <Yeah>. weights <laughs> tend to operate in that work, right? Like yeah. three sets of 12 repetitions <laughs> each on whatever the muscle is or the muscle group. Mm. And this is just a different type of muscle that we're building. You can't go to the gym once and get six-pack abs and rippling pecs and biceps. You need to do <laughs> yeah. it over, over periods of time. And it's the same with these habits. We need to work on creating different behaviors to get out of the muck, to get out of the overwhelm and to get out of the kind of constant whirring of the thoughts and the putting ourselves last and just gently build little pieces by little pieces towards feeling better, towards choosing ourselves first. Mm. So that's where I play. That's the work I do. Yeah. So I have three more questions, if you don't mind. Absolutely. And what made you get into this type of work, like working with men's health? Not just men's health, men's emotion. It became a calling. Honestly, like yeah. my wife and I started a business when we left Sydney and started traveling full time. We started a mm. business about what my wife had learned on health, right? Like about he helping other parents feed their families healthier food, make simple changes, pack healthier school lunches for the kids, all this sort of stuff. And funnily enough, that business is called The Root Cause because it's about getting to the root cause of <laughs> yes. like what makes yeah. for a healthy, great life, you know? Um but after we stopped traveling and we started taking a different approach with that work, I just had this nagging sense that I was meant to be doing something slightly different. And I was feeling like I was doing work that I, I loved the work, but I felt there was an obligation to it. I felt like it wasn't really the work I was supposed to be doing. And I've been working with a coach of my own. So, you know, I work as a coach. I have a coach mm. who helps me see my own blind spots and she said to me one day, actually I'd said to her, I said, I've just, I've got this like feeling like I'm meant to be coaching other men, like I'm meant to be working with men. And she said, <laughs> "Yeah." so just freaking do it. Just put a little call out on, on your Facebook page and see if anyone's interested in having a chat. And it snowballed, James. Like I, I put up a message on my Facebook account and I put a little link of a form of like people just, if you're interested, I said, here's where I've come from. I've gone through depression, anxiety. I've lost my dad to suicide. I've done a fistful of personal development programs. I've seen loads of psychologists. I've collected a massive amount of tools and mm -hmm. I'm also feeling like I've got this intuitive kind of knowing that I need to do this work. So if you want to have a chat with me and you feel like you might be a little in a bit of struggle fest at the moment, let's have a chat. Let's have a one hour conversation. Yeah. I'm going to make it available for five men, one hour a piece. It's just, let's play, let's have a go and see what happens. Yeah. 
and you know, worst case, we just talk for an hour and you don't get anything out of it and we've met some new people and happy days. But best case, yeah. you might learn something and grow from this. Anyway, after those, like I think I had the post up for about 12 hours and I had to turn the form off because I'd booked seven men rather than the five in 12 hours. And I went, wow, there's a need for this, right? Good. That's mm-hmm. the first little piece of, of validation. And then after that, I just felt so alive after those conversations. And it was stuff that I could help men with. Everything I've shared with you was what I was hearing from the other side of the vehicle. It may have taken a slightly different shape from man to man, but it all came back to putting themselves last, not knowing how to look after themselves, not able to like atrophied, no ability to feel what they were feeling. Mm. So I started doing that work and then I spoke to my wife and she saw me coming out of those meetings and she's like, wow, you look more lit up. Like <laughs> yeah. you, are, you are glowing. You're vibrating yeah. right now. Like what's on your face? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's like, what, this is what you should be doing. You know what the work you've been doing with me. Great. But this is not what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. So, so she said the coaching stuff, that's where we need to help you transition to that. So it took me a 12 month period to, work myself out of a role within the root cause and take on this full time. Mm. And since then I've, I've, you know, replaced my income. I have a wonderful array of a growing kind of roster of clients that I support and it's just the most fulfilling work. So it just came from that really listening to my own inner wisdom and the work I've done. Yeah, totally, totally taking that brave leap really. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, uh, it's an important work. And I suppose for yourself as well, when you talk about your previous job, you were just in a job, but you weren't really happy. Well, this one, mm. it's it's a job, but it's not a job, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? It's 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 fun. It's play, you know? And, and it's that interesting dynamic too where it does come very naturally to me, but it's also something I want to get better at yes. and I want to master. And so I feel like there's that beautiful tension between I can do something well and I'm really excited about the challenge of growth and learning and failing and getting better. Mm. You know, it's that Yeah. <laughs> whenever you, you play a sport that you love, like I play basketball and so I look at the guys in the NBA, I'm like, damn, I would love to be able to play like those guys play, like the position, the awareness, the being able to pass effectively, to shoot better, and that takes work. That takes dedication and commitment and practice over time. But I love the journey of that mm. because I love the game. I love the play, right? And it's the same with this work. I feel like it's that beautiful alignment in me. This is what I'm here on the planet for. Yeah. And I know I need to get better because I, I'm, I'm not at the level of mastery I want to reach yet. Yeah. But I know I'm also making a massive, profound difference in the in the lives of my clients. So it's it's a beautiful dynamic that I'm really excited about. Super. Two more questions. Sorry, what's one thing mm-hmm. you're proud of <sighs> for yourself? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really proud of the courage that I show in choosing the difficult path. Mm. And and by that, I mean <laughs> running your own business, talking to men about emotions, you know, building an international 
coaching practice from a tiny little town (laughs) that affords me the lifestyle I want to have. Like none of those things make sense. They're not the easy version of what I could be doing, right? If I wanted to make a truckload of cash, I'd go back into IT. It's way more lucrative in the immediate term. And yet the bravery that I feel I've shown to choose the path I've taken you know, this is career number four for me. I've gone through three other careers prior to this, IT, photography, the health company, and now coaching. Every single time I've chosen what was in my heart and where I felt called to go next rather than the logical, rational financial outcome. You know, mm. my wife and I relocated out of the big city. We now live about halfway between Sydney and Brisbane. Um because of the lifestyle we want to live. You know, we're on a couple of acres. We've got kangaroos hopping through our backyard every day. (laughs) I'm five minutes from an amazing beach that I get to surf at regularly, you know. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of things I do that are definitely not the the easy path. And I'm I'm proud of myself for the courage it shows to do that. Brilliant. My last question, what does well-being mean to you? Well-being to me means... Knowing myself, having practices in place to support me feeling good as often as possible and showing up as my best every day, or at least as often in each day as I can. (laughs) Sometimes there's crap days. Sometimes I get stuck in my own stuff, you know, but... Mm. But well-being to me, yeah, like physical. Uh, you know what? There's a, actually there's this great, there's this great model that was written about. There's a, an Australian guy called Steve Bidolf who wrote a book called Fully Human, and he talks about this model called the four-story mansion. So if you think mm. about a house or, or a mansion with four stories, the first floor is our physical body, the second floor is our emotions, the third floor is our mind, our thoughts, and the fourth floor is our spirituality. And he contends and he he puts forward that we need to have a really rich, free-moving relationship with all four levels of that four-story mansion course, to yeah. be to be fully healthy, to be a fully yeah. functioning human. So to me, well-being is about feeling like I'm in touch with all four floors of that mansion. Mm. Fantastic. We um, Most of us are stuck in one or two floors. <laughs> oh, Absolutely right. Yeah. You know, like a lot of us <laughs> yeah. get stuck in, in level three in our heads, in our thoughts. We're just constantly in our heads all day. Some of us get stuck totally in our emotions and we just ride this this horrifying roller coaster between outrage and anger to fear and despair to sadness, depending on what the media feeds us. You know, we're just on this up and down and left and right and all mm-hmm. over the place. And then a lot of us are completely disconnected from our physical selves and from our spiritual selves. We have no practices in place to look after this one beautiful body that we get given to walk around and experience life in. And we also have no concept of that connection to something slightly bigger than us as people that, you know, that there's maybe some higher power or some broader experience, you know, like for me, I'm not a religious man, but very deeply spiritual with my connection to nature, to the ocean, to, this sense of humanity is a bigger piece. And you're right, we get so stuck in in one or two floors. <laughs> yeah. And then we wonder why things don't quite work properly, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we blame other people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, it's been my pleasure, James. That's been thank my pleasure. I love, like, man, we could talk for days. I love this stuff. This is really what I'm here for. But so grateful that you've had me. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it. You could leave a quick review on my Facebook page. Don't be afraid to talk or DM me on Instagram. The show notes will include all the relevant links from today's episode. If you haven't already, please download, leave a rating and share with your friends. You might just reach the person who needs to hear this message. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. I am James Lumumba signing off with gratitude.